Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, in honor of Men's Health Month, it's a conversation about men's health issues with Dr. Stanton Honig. Dr. Honig is a professor of clinical urology, director of the Male Reproductive Health Program, and director of the Male Sexual Medicine Program at Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery. So, Stanton, maybe we can start off, you know, it's Men's Health Month, and many men are thinking about cancer uh, and uh the different kinds of cancers that men get. And so maybe we can start there. Tell us what are the most frequent cancers um, that men get specifically and what kinds of things that they can be doing to make sure that they stay healthy this month and every month. Well, first of all, men actually are not great at screening. You know, women are, are really very good at screening. They're, they're good at breast cancer, they're good at um, publicity, and men, men just don't really like to go to the doctor, especially between the ages of 18 and 40. They go as children, and then they go off to college or work, and then generally they have a family, and they really don't come back to the doctor for many years. So one of the important points that we're trying to make here is, especially for June, uh, which is Men's Health Month, is that men need to go to the doctor to get checked for uh, just regular exams to understand the important things that they should be doing, uh, just monitor uh, risk factors for cardiovascular disease, things like that. And uh, for instance, one of the things that we recommend in young men is to uh, have a, do a testicular self-exam. Women are very attentive to uh, examining their breasts. Uh, usually they're told you know, once a month when they're having their period or just one particular time. But men don't have that, and uh, it's important that they examine themselves regularly because testicular cancer is, is a young man's disease, typically in men 20 to, to 45 when they're not going to the doctor. So early detection is very important. I think that's really critical because a lot of men think of cancer as an older person's disease. But testicular cancer is one that, as you say, happens in younger men. So tell us a little bit more about how to do a testicular exam, how frequently people should be doing a testicular exam, what should they be looking for or feeling for, what things should prompt a guy to go to the doctor? Because as you say, they're not going to go to the doctor just because. Right. So you can kind of think of the testicle as an egg almost, and it should be smooth on the outside. You shouldn't feel anything inside. Anything outside the testicle generally is not a cancer, but it has to be in that egg part of the testicle. If you feel something that's in one or both of your testicles, specifically in the testicle, that's something that you should go to the doctor for um, as soon as possible just to get checked. What about if one testicle is bigger than the other? Is that a concerning thing? Not a, ma not a major concern for cancer. It might be a concern for fertility-related issues. But even men who just have one testicle actually um, have 
just the same rates of getting their partners pregnant as they do with two testicles. And one of the one of the important points I like to stress to men is that most of the the male related cancers are very treatable. So for instance, of all the cancers one could get, testicular cancer is probably the most treatable with probably a 99% cure rate, even in advanced stages. So one of the things that uh, men like to know is that not only do they, if they have a problem, but is it treatable? So one of the nice things about testicular cancer and prostate cancer, especially when treated early, is most of these are curable cancer. So another reason to go to the doctor and uh, get evaluated and treated because it is a treatable problem. It's not like you're going to die of the problem unless you just just don't come in in a reasonable time frame. Right. And so that leads to kind of this whole concept of early diagnosis, early treatment. So is a lump in the testicle something within that egg of the testicle that feels a little abnormal, uh, uh, something that isn't smooth, something that's bumpy in one testicle versus the other? Are those really the main kind of things to look for in terms of early detection? Is there anything else that guys should be looking for, or is that really it? That's pretty it. Um, most of the time, uh, cancer of the testicle is not painful. It's usually painless. It usually shows up as just an abnormality in that particular area of the egg. So anything outside the egg, we don't worry about, but the inside of the egg or, or, or just kind of the egg itself is if you felt something that didn't belong. And, and you should check yourself pretty much once a month because you want to check for changes. That's good to know. And I think the other point that you made that I, I just want to hit home is that these are generally painless. So many times patients that think that if it's painless, it's probably nothing. But if it's painful, then, then it kind of signals them to go to the doctor. But remember, if you feel something that's out of the ordinary, uh, something that's not quite in that nice, smooth egg, even if it's painless, that might be something that you should go and get checked out. Right. And the same thing is true for prostate cancer. So prostate cancer is a disease of older men or middle-aged men, men between the ages of 50, 80, 85. Generally, um, as you get older, there's a higher chance of having prostate cancer. Um, but many of those cancers, once you get older, are not tend to be like, not aggressive cancers. Um, but Typically, prostate cancer doesn't have any symptoms either. It's picked up on a routine blood test, which we recommend for men clearly between the ages of 55 and 70, and especially in the high-risk population, such as a family member who has had prostate cancer, and that would mean a first degree, so a, a brother or a father would be a first-degree relative, not necessarily an uncle. So brother or father would be high risk, and also the African-American population. So that population we tend to screen a little bit earlier in, in, their, in their 40s and early 50s as well. But otherwise, you want to be seeing these guys somewhere between the ages of 55 and 70 to get that blood test, the PSA. Right, and those are the AUA guidelines uh, that the recommendation is between 55 and 70 at the present time. And what are the other symptoms that guys might have that might prompt them to go to the doctor outside of those age ranges? Or even if they, they're in those age ranges, something that might pique their, uh, their curiosity 
that might be a signal that they may be sitting on a prostate cancer, for example. Well, some men will have urinary symptoms, so they'll get up a lot at night. They'll go frequently during the day. Their stream will get weaker. Most of the times, that is a sign of benign prostate growth, not cancer of the prostate. But there is treatment for that uh, as well. Uh, we also see a lot of men as they age uh, relating to erectile dysfunction. So uh, about 30% of men over the age of 40 will have some degree of erectile dysfunction, and that will, that will uh, increase as men get older. And one of, the, one of the important things that I share with patients as soon as they come in to see me is that erectile dysfunction is a treatable problem. Okay, uh, we have excellent treatments for men who have erectile dysfunction that range from pills to local treatments to the penis to uh, surgical options. And I tell patients that there's a treatment for everybody. And uh, some people will respond to early treatments. Some will tr respond to more advanced treatments. But uh, we can treat almost everybody who has a problem with, with erections. And, and and having a problem with an erection doesn't necessarily mean that it's something bad, like a cancer. It's sometimes just a physiologic thing. Well, two things. Um, one, it's not necessarily a sign of cancer, but it may actually be a sign of blood flow problems elsewhere in the body. So uh, a lot of times we'll see a 45-year-old guy come in. He has no risk factors for erectile dysfunction, which would be things like smoking, high cholesterol, diabetes, high blood pressure, things like that, and we treat them for their erectile dysfunction, and then a couple of years later, they'll show up with these types of things. Mm -hmm. Or just conversely, someone will show up with erectile dysfunction, will find out they're a new diabetic. Mm -hmm. So we'll send them back to their internist to get uh, risk factor modification for high cholesterol, get treated for diabetes, things like that. So sometimes erectile dysfunction is not a sign of cancer per se, but can be a sign of underlying blood flow problems from other diseases. Right. So, so when we're thinking about male cancers and we're thinking, we talked a little bit about testicular cancer, uh, prostate cancer. Um, in both of these cases, you said that both of them are very treatable. Um, Correct. Tell us a little bit more about the treatment. So why don't we start with testicular cancer? How is that treated? I mean, especially being a cancer of young men, um, I'm sure a lot of them are worried about, well, if you're going to surgically remove a testicle, what does that do to my fertility? What does that do to the rest of my life? I'm 25 years old. Having testicular cancer might might be a devastating diagnosis. Right. So as part of our kind of uh, comprehensive male men's health program, we counsel patients on sexuality, fertility, things like that. Generally speaking, uh, treatment for testicular cancer does not result in any sexual problems for men short-term or long-term. But in some men who have testicular cancer, they may need to undergo, either, they'll start with removal of the testicle, but some of them will need radiation, some will need chemotherapy, some will need subsequent surgery, all of which are curable types of things. Um, so in that population, we strongly recommend that men freeze their sperm before they undergo any type of treatment. So it's very important 
for men to think about that, not only the patients, but their primary care doctors, their oncologists. So we try to spread the word um, to the general public as well as the practitioners that are involved with the care of these patients. So I know, you know, when young women have breast cancer, for example, the same kind of thing, right? If they're going to have chemotherapy, that can really have an impact in terms of their fertility. And we talk about egg preservation and so on. In terms of freezing sperm, a lot of guys may not think about this or might not know about it. Tell us a little bit more about what that involves and how do you do it? What's the cost? Is it available everywhere? Those kinds of things. So, number one, it's it's readily avail- available, really, in any particular center. Uh, and unlike uh, retrieving eggs, which is an invasive procedure, it's just a matter of collecting a semen sample and sending it to the lab. And we're we're kind of we closely work with the reproductive centers, whereby if we know a patient is going to undergo chemotherapy in a timely fashion, we can get them in real quick. So uh, we'll get them in um, in a timely fashion to collect a sample. Uh, there have been there, you know, within 24 hours, if someone needs to start chemotherapy or radiation, there have even been situations where someone's been uh, sick in an intensive care unit, we've, where we've actually been able to retrieve sperm from the testicle right in the intensive care unit. So all these things are uh, things that we focus in on men's health, and we want to just uh, make sure that especially in June, which is Men's Health Month, that men think about these things and their practitioners think of them as well. Yeah, it it is so great learning about more about men's health, uh, but we need to take a short break for a medical minute. So please stay tuned to learn more with my guest, Dr. Stanton Honig. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with bladder cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about pancreatic cancer, which represents about 3% of all cancers in the U.S. and about 7% of cancer deaths. Clinical trials are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers for the treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies. Fulfirinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advance in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer, and research continues at centers around the world looking into targeted therapies and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I am joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Stan Honig. It is Men's Health Month uh, this month uh, of June, and we're talking about men's health and particularly men's cancer as it pertains to reproductive organs. We were just before the break talking about testicular cancer, a completely treatable cancer affecting young men, but one that really might be kind of something that a lot of young men worry about when given that diagnosis in terms of sexual function and so on. So Stanton, we were talking about 
freezing sperm if you are going to be undergoing chemotherapy to maintain fertility. Um, and you were saying that this is readily available. One of the questions uh, that comes up, at least for women undergoing breast cancer treatment who need to freeze eggs or, uh, or uh, ovary slices or whatever, is the cost of doing that um, to keep this in storage. Can you speak a little bit about, is it the same way for men? Is that more costly, less costly? I mean, what are the barriers to fertility preservation in men? Well, I think number one is the time frame of collection. So uh, as I stated earlier, we have a working relationship with the sperm freezing team. So we have a direct line. So if I see a patient in the office that needs chemotherapy very quickly, we can get them in usually within 24 hours uh, to freeze sperm. The cost is not prohibitive, but that is patient-dependent. Some patients don't have very much money to freeze anything, and, and the cost may run somewhere between 400 to $800 to freeze a specimen. That may not be something that patients can afford. Uh, one of the nice things about Connecticut is that about a year ago, the state legislature passed a law stating that uh, insurance companies have to cover uh, fertility preservation, mm. both in men and women. So that's something that uh, is important. Uh, and not only does it extend to extend for cancer, but we're, we're trying to extend that for other conditions, other patients who have uh, benign conditions like rheumatoid arthritis or other type of immunological diseases. They may need some kind of uh, cytotoxic drugs uh, drugs that kill the bad cells, but they also kill the sperm cells. We also have tried to uh, implement this for the transgender population to freeze sperm before they uh, undergo hormone therapy or before they undergo gender-affirming surgery. So we're, we're, we're focused in on men's health, but we, we try to do a broad evaluation for the needs for fertility across the board. That's really great. Now, how many patients who have testicular cancer will require chemotherapy or radiation, something that might affect fertility. Uh, are there some patients, if we talked a little bit before the break about uh, early detection, are there some patients in whom simply removal of the testicle would be all that they need? Yes. So um, there are two general types of cancer of the testicle. One is called a seminoma, and that is the most common uh, tumor. And most of those are confined to the testicle. And I'd say the majority of those patients who undergo that treatment will be cured just from removal of the testicle. And then they've got the other testicle, so they don't need any fertility preservation because they can still... That's true. But again, uh, it's something that we, we, we check uh, during the time of initial evaluation. So it's important to make sure that your other testicle is, is okay. Yeah. So occasionally we'll come across someone who has uh, one testicle. I had a couple of patients last in the last couple of weeks who had masses in both testicles, mm. uh, which gets a little bit more complicated. Uh, so some of those patients may require chemotherapy. Some will require uh, radiation. So uh, again, it's important just to be thinking about the concept of freezing sperm ahead of time. 
So the seminomas, you might be good with surgery alone. And if your other testicle is okay, you might not need fertility preservation. You were telling us about a second kind of testicular cancer. So the second type is called the non-seminominous group. And those are, tend to be a little bit more aggressive, but again, 99% cure it. And some of them we put on an observation protocol with close follow-up, and they may not need chemo or radiation. Some may opt for a what's called a retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. It's an evaluation of the lymph nodes, which is where the cancer of the testicle spreads. Uh, sometimes when that operation is done, it can affect a man's ability to ejaculate. So he could have an orgasm, but no fluid comes out. So that would be another reason to consider freezing sperm before that secondary surgery. Similarly, there are certain patients that will undergo either one course of chemotherapy, if it's an early stage cancer, or if it's a late stage cancer, they may need three or four courses. And, you know, this concept that, well, the chemotherapy isn't that bad, it's going to go down to zero, and then it's going to bounce back. Well, what if you're that guy that doesn't bounce back? Or what if you're that guy that does not respond to the first round of chemotherapy uh, and needs the, the second round of more invasive and more um, cell-killing chemotherapy, it also is more likely to kill sperm cells. So we strongly recommend freezing sperm before patients undergo any of these treatments. Does chemotherapy and radiation for testicular cancer cause difficulty with getting an erection or ejaculation? I mean, forget about sperm production, but does it cause other sexual dysfunction that guys should be aware of? Right. So that's a really good question because the good thing about uh, this particular situation is that the cells that produce testosterone in the testicle called the Leydig cells are very resistant to being damaged by chemotherapy and radiation, number one. Number two, it's very rare to develop a physical problem with erections or problems with a low testosterone relating to cancer of the testicle. So it's not uncommon for me to see a young man that uh, has had testicular cancer who may have some problems sexually. And most of the time, um, it's what I would call situational anxiety. He's gone through treatment. He may have gone through chemotherapy. He may have some uh, body image issues relating to removal of the testicle. One of the nice things is that we have testicular prostheses. They're little um, testicles that are about the size of an egg that are filled with salt water that we can put in. So if men are um, generally a little self-conscious about that, uh, we can put in a matching testicle to the other side. So we work, again, we, walk, we work through all these issues with our young patients, um, and most of the time we can treat them or get them back to where they were before. Cool. Well, now let's switch from the young patients and testicular cancer to the older patients uh, who have prostate cancer. Tell us a little bit more about how prostate cancer is managed these days, and, and what are some of the issues that men need to think about in terms of managing prostate cancer? So number one, um, prostate cancer treatment has really evolved over the last 10 years to us better identifying which ones that need to be treated and which ones uh, do not. So uh, the what I would call early stage prostate cancers that are relatively low grade, where we used to operate on everybody, we actually 
um, observe patients on a regular basis. It's actually, we use the term active surveillance, where we monitor uh, the the aggressiveness of prostate cancers uh, in patients. So um, for patients who have a relatively low what's called Gleason score, uh, we tend to monitor them with active surveillance as opposed to treating them in the past with radiation and surgery. The patients who have the intermediate grade cancers typically need some kind of treatment, and that usually will include surgically uh, removing the prostate or radiation therapy. And the advanced cancers uh, may require a combination. They may require what's called hormone deprivation therapy, which involves a removal uh, chemically of the, the male hormones of the body with or without uh, new chemotherapeutic regimens. Um, in our clinic, we see a large number of patients who have uh, problems with erections after their treatment. Mm -hmm. So um, for patients who have undergone uh, robotic prostatectomies or radiation therapy, we have a series of algorithms where we treat them, again, starting with pills and then with uh, local treatments to the penis and in a certain number of patients, uh, surgical treatments that may involve what's called a penile implant. Uh, so, again, patients who uh, are treated for prostate cancer, we have a treatment for everybody who has problems with erections afterwards. It's just a matter of how far they want to go uh, for treatment. And that's an important message I like to get out uh, to patients because there are a lot of patients out there that undergo treatment and they think that there's nothing that we could do for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I stress that we, we really have a treatment for everybody. So people can get back to their usual sexual function because I can imagine how that can be something that a lot of guys are thinking about, you know, either with with testicular cancer or or with prostate cancer. What about what about penile cancers? Well, penile cancers luckily are pretty rare and they're usually associated with men who have not been circumcised and um, have abnormalities under their penis, typically when you can't pull the skin back um, as well. And luckily, that is a rare cancer, um, and uh, it's something that is very treatable as well. Again, early detection, but luckily, it's a rare cancer. I'd like to focus a little bit more on the, the erection issues with yeah. um, prostate cancer patients because I think that one of the things that you said they can get back to the way they were before, I think we got to be careful with how we say that because you know, I think intimacy is very important for, for couples. And um, it's, it's also important to realize what's what are expectations or what expectations are reasonable and, and what may not be. So someone who's had radiation, who uh, was had a surgical removal of his, his prostate, uh, they may not be able to go back to exactly the way they were before, but we can work with them and their intimate partner to get them back to having a sexual activity um, similar to where they were before. It may not be, may not be perfect, but we can get them much, much better.
especially um, with a penile implant. Uh, penile implant is, is one of those treatments that kind of gets a bad reputation on the internet because you read one thing about one guy who had a horror story. But if you look actually at the success rates or the, the satisfaction rates in patients who have uh, penile implants, it's, it's very, very, very high. It's over 90%. So I, I'd encourage patients who are out there who are, who are have read kind of negative things on the internet about penile implants to, to hear a little bit more about it from patients who've had it and have done very well. Especially if their their sex life isn't the way that they want it to be, because there there could be something that could ameliorate that for them. Right, and and uh, we're not we're we we try to go through a stepwise approach, so it's not you go directly to having surgery. There's actually. Um, injections that we can teach men to do directly into the side of the penis. And all men are kind of sitting there saying, oh my God, I I can't imagine doing this. But um, the side of the penis has very little pain fibers. And the needle that's used is like a diabetic needle. And patients come in, they're kind of petrified to do it, but they do it in our office. We give them a test dose in the office. We see how they respond. And probably 70 to 80% of men who have undergone treatment for prostate cancer will have erections good enough to have penetrative um, relations with their partners um, with this kind of treatment. So, uh, you know, you just have to find the right person who can treat you, things like that. And um, I think. Uh, you know, one of the take-home messages for the whole hour is, you know, men need to come to the doctor. They need to be examined, uh, examining themselves in, firm, in terms of their testicles. Uh, prostate cancer is a treatable treatment as treatable cancer as well, and we have excellent uh, treatments for sexually related issues relating to men uh, who've had treatment for prostate cancer. Dr. Stanton Honig is a professor of clinical urology, director of the Male Reproductive Health Program, and director of the Male Sexual Medicine Program at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We invite you to join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.